Welcome to part three of At The Mermaid. I'm Sarah Lafford and I've spent the last five months talking to people online about their memories of the Mermaid pub in Birmingham, seen by many as the birthplace of Grindcore. At The Mermaid is a capsule production, a Home of Metal project. Home of Metal's projects join the dots between music, social history, visual art and fan cultures to produce a new perspective on heavy metal. One that is celebratory, eschews notions of high-low art and joins audiences and performers together. Home of Metal is devoted to the music that was born in and around Birmingham. Music that turned up the volume, down-tuned guitars and introduced a whole new meaning to the word heavy. This time we'll focus on some of the bands that played at The Mermaid and the gigs that have stayed with people some 40 years later. Home of Metal's entry point to The Mermaid was the punk metal crossover, which came to be known as Grindcore, that emerged from the Mermaid scene in the 1980s. Spending time talking with regular gig-goers, it's clear that there was actually an impressive range of underground music showcased at the pub. Indie bands like Primal Scream, post-punk bands Au Pairs and World Domination Enterprises, Power Electronics and Harsh Noise like White House and blues rock band The Groundhogs all played there. Here's Nick Bullen of Napalm Death, Alan Wedgbury, Steve Watson of Cerebral Fix with some of their memories. In the, the period of sort of 1983, 1984, 1985, a lot of the bands based around Borsal Heath and Moseley, those areas, and also then slightly over to, say, Saltley, Small Heath, which would include some of the reggae bands, some of the funk bands, some of the more what you would call indie bands. They would be playing at the Mermaid quite a lot, and it was it was... You know, it was just as much a venue for those groups as it was for others. It was a real mixture because, so punk, you had sort of psychedelic bands, hippie bands. So they did mix. You know, you had um, bands derived from gong called Here and Now. You you know, and you had um, punk bands, you had anarchist bands, you had hardcore death metal bands. You know, there's probably so many other sub-genres that I'm not aware of. I mean, Chumbawamba were playing there long before they become popular. You know, they played there probably three or four times. I saw the Cardiacs there two or, th- two or three times, Chumbawamba two or three times. What tended to happen is bands, because there wasn't hundreds of bands playing this type of music, they played there, they were booked over and over. You get a genuinely good mix, especially at the moment. You're getting some of these strange kind of... Euro bands, which have got different musical influences to to you or I or, or whatever, you know. Across many of the flyers for Mermaid gigs, a typed landline phone number for Dazwell still appears. You were to call that number if you needed more information about a gig. Daz Russell, who now organises Rebellion Festival, appears to have worked tirelessly to bring dozens of underground bands to Birmingham and give local punk and hardcore bands a regular place to play with a reliably enthusiastic crowd. Matthew Knight, Swag, Tim Richardson, Steve Watson of Cerebral Fix and Paul Catton told me their memories of him. I think sometimes it perhaps forgotten, but it wasn't for Daz Russell. It, it wouldn't have existed. And, and if, it, if it never existed, then it wouldn't have affected so, so, so many people's lives. Like, you know, so I think we've got a lot to thank him for. 
I really do. It's just a great place, really. And um, one thing I will say is many people disagree with me, but I thought Darren Russell was a great bloke, and he put his life on the line a few times to pay bands. And he's got a terrible reputation as a band of guy that never paid the bands. And he had a te- he got beaten up a few times. He had his car set on fire, you know, outside the Mermaid. And he's had a very bad press all, all through the decades, and which I think he's unwarranted. Promoters have always had a hard time in Birmingham. Bands haven't got a good word to say about it, and neither of the mother of the public. There was a guy that ran the foundry for a bit, it's called Greg, and he had to, he had to, he had to leave Birmingham because he owed some bands some money. No one knows where he went, but he, he had to leave. And that's when, I mean, Darren did leave Birmingham, not for that reason, I don't think. Um, but yeah, he was, he was a great Darren was, and, he, and he, his wife at the time, Jenny, she she helped as well with the promoting. And without him, you know, these a lot of these bands would never have played Birmingham. There'd have been no Mermaid. And I go down with him to this day, I do. He had Adrenaline OD on. He had Government Issue on, who for a while were my favourite band of all time. I think they played in Coventry, actually, though. But a, a load of American bands who wouldn't play anywhere else. Nottingham was a good place at the time. We used to go to Nottingham a lot because a lot of bands would bypass Birmingham and play Nottingham. But I think Daz Russell kind of almost got Birmingham to the stage that that Nottingham did. We would, yeah. If, if you saw an American band, you would, if someone had a car, you'd drive to Nottingham, occasionally London. But I think it was that. It's just the quality of stuff he had on. Like, we'd go, you just go, you just go on Saturday because it would be good, you know. You'd, you'd know it'd be good, wherever it was. I remember there was outrage when he paid napalm, like 500 or something. But there was, there was 500 people in there paying 505 quid each. He was making loads of money and then giving you know, bands hardly anything. I think he realised after a while that it did. Yeah, there was, there was always people, uh, Russell Throve did a song about him, because uh, he, he got his car smashed up, I remember. I remember who did it. I know Russell Throve did a song called Hello, Dad's Got a New Motor or something. All good things come to an end. And Daz used to take some flack, right, as all promoters do. But he yet kept that scene alive, you know, in Birmingham. You know, he don't pay bands, but sometimes, you know, when you're charging people a quid to get in, you don't make a lot of money by the time you pay the PA and that. You know, do you want to play the mermaid or not? So, you know, you used to sort that's when you see how much of an anarchist someone is <laughs> when they're not getting paid. In hindsight, at the time, I didn't really know much more about it, but I haven't been in that situation. But Daz is out there, he's still doing all right. And, you know, he's doing all right for himself with the rebellion. Like I say, we, I met him for the first time in years last year. Daz Russell had a huge role promoting shows at the mermaid, but Daz wasn't the only person putting gigs on there. Derek Einan produced shows under the name Birmingham Ain't Dead Yet. I was and still am in a band called Red Shoes, which has been going for 40 years next year. And we played some shows up there, which I promoted under the banner of Birmingham Ain't Dead Yet, the first one was called. And then, I can't remember what the other one's called, but they were a variation on that. The last one was called Birmingham Hasn't Finished Christmas Yet, but that was the last one. Uh, we did three or four of them. Um, the Rag Dolls played a couple of them who were a, a tremendous call and tremendous live band. Fortunately, a couple of them are dead now. Their fans would always fill the place for us. So Red Shoes would play probably second on the bill to them and we'd have another couple of bands below. And we did uh, three, maybe four of those. Uh, and they were hugely successful. Massive door take. And got quite a lot of publicity, which I you probably see in the written publication that I've shared with you some uh, uh, press cuttings from the time from Birmingham Mail and Birmingham Post. We were very supportive of it. We got a lot of free publicity out of it, basically, off the back of this idea that the bands fight back against venue closures, which was something that was blighting the city centre. There was a lot of pubs that were changing from live music venues into fun pubs, you know, dress restrictions and all the rest of it. And it was a, it was a protest against all that, and that was where the, the publicity came from and got quite a wave of uh, force behind it. I went up there as a punter a few times, uh, went to see Hanoi Rocks up there, supported by uh, London 
Cowboys, which had Sex Pistol, um, Glenn Matlock in the band. Harrow Rocks were absolutely tremendous up there. Uh, the place was absolutely trashed. There was chairs being thrown about. It's a good thing the place was a mess already because it was certainly a mess afterwards. Surinda Singh, who ran the place in those days, he'd always give me the ballroom free of charge. Um, I worked for BT at the time. He would always ask me to provide a letter on BT-headed notepaper to say that the evening was a social evening for BT staff and their families. And using that, he would present that to the licensing justices and get a half-hour extension from 11 to half 11 or half 10 to 11 or whatever it was. It was an extra half-hour anyway, which was very hard to come by. And if he knew the place was full of punks drinking Carlsberg Special Brew, I don't think the licensing justices would have been quite so supportive. But uh, the mythical BT social, they, um, they took on board, so that was fine. And we had huge attendances up there. So how do people find out about these gigs? According to Ben Andrews and Steve Watson, record shops were a common source of knowledge. Well, it would have been Tempest, by where the second McDonald's is, you know, like where the Hummingbird is. Then it would have been uh, Swordfish, but that was on Hurst Street then, and it wasn't called that. And then there would have been Plastic Factory at the top by Aston. Then there would have been like uh, Summit Records and Tapes in the rag market, but that wasn't, that was more of a dub record shop rather than the sort of a metal punk one. I loved it. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like there's, there's Oasis, which had great underground record shops, Vinyl Dreams, run by a guy called Barry. There was always flies in there and posters up for what was on in Brum as well. Swordfish, put Godflesh's first record out, that was opened up a bit later. It seems that despite the efforts of Daz Russell and others, there was a real lack of live music culture in Birmingham in the 1980s. People told me there wasn't many music venues and touring bands usually skipped the city entirely. His swag and Ben. Generally at that time, there was no major gig venue in Birmingham, I don't think. They stopped doing gigs at the Odeon. I used to see gigs there early on, like in the early 80s, Motorhead, people like that. It wasn't, it wasn't replaced. I mean, much later, you had things like the Hummingbird, and uh, then you had the Ballroom, which became uh, in the O2 bought it. You had all these big venues. But at the time, there was nothing. I think the Hummingbird might have been going as a reggae-only venue, possibly. It seems bizarre now, the second city, but there were no big venues in Birmingham live music. Yeah, there was the NEC, of course. I'd never go there. So. so there was a little, there was the barrel organ, and then that, when Darren finished with the mermaid, he got closed down for health and safety. He had the kaleidoscope. And, and, and Edwards used to do the odd gig. It was number eight. Then there was the foundry after that. There was all small venues, and then there was a punk, not, not long after the mermaid, there was a punk collective called Midland Red. And they used to put punk gigs on one, once a month at the City Tavern, which is off Broad Street. Most of the gigs I went to in that period were at the Mermaids, 95% of the What really sticks in my mind was I remember when the, mer- when the Mermaid closed, and then the, I think the Kaleidoscope closed a few years later. I remember sitting in a pub with somebody, with some of my mates, and saying, well, it sort of dawned on me. It wasn't just there were no punk gigs in Birmingham, there were no gigs in Birmingham. You can't believe it when you look back now. It's the second city had no gigs for about 18 months, I think, or two years. Not even big gigs. One place you might see a gig once every three or four months, a punk gig, was at the Irish Centre. Somebody would speak to the Irish owners and say, we'll build a big But it was quite bizarre, there was, there was no gigs, no gigs. While the Mermaid was going, there was quite a few other places. There was quite a few gigs at the at the Barrow. a few gigs there, which is now subside, is it? It was all around Digworth, like it is now. We know it's all different venues now, because there's a lot of venues in Digworth now, isn't there? There's like Norton's and Mama Roo's and Crossing and the Mill, and there's hundreds. <laughs> 
So it's a bit like that in a way, but not so much in the back streets, more on the high street. Really. And the ship ashore used to do gigs occasionally, which was, which was a pub that's long been locked down. And then there was the Market Tavern, that, that was around the corner from the Anchor. This was all a bit later on. Though. So yeah, it was the Mermaid was a, was a lifeline, really. Things happened for a reason, I suppose, and because the owners of the Mermaid just wanted to make a bit of money and they, they knew that Dad would bring a crowd in, they would put up with all sorts. He did have to stop putting pumpkins on there for about six weeks because of all the damage. It soon started again. But it was the toilets getting smashed and, um, and glasses getting broken. and It wasn't like damage to the building or such. The wind, no, windows weren't broken, I don't think. It was obviously pretty chaotic in there at times. <laughs> Fights did happen. I know they did happen, but I didn't witness anything. And I mean, everyone was having a good time, but there were some dodgy things going on. There people doing glue in there, you know, occasionally. I saw that. There's a lot of drugs going on, but mainly it wasn't class A drugs. It was just like smoking dope and mushrooms. I suppose there's probably a bit of speed. I'm probably painting a bit of a black picture, really, but it was, it was great fun, to be honest. You know, it couldn't happen now. It just couldn't happen. It was, it was great. And I met, made so many friends there. Yeah, good times. Lots of students. But it was quite good because it, was, it wasn't anywhere near Birmingham University. And also, Birmingham at the time was, wasn't very good for bands. A lot of bands, when they toured, skipped Birmingham because it wasn't a decent size, middle-sized venue. So you had horrible rock bands at NEC, or you had, like, blues bands down by Curzon Street st uh, Station. And so um, the Mermaid was um, great because it had its own sort of alternative circuit of bands that would come from everywhere there was a website and a like sort of fanzine in the 90s Birmingham it's not shit well it, it sort of was then as I said a lot of people when they graduated just left for London a lot of bands didn't play it wasn't really until Lisa and Jenny started Capsule that you had any sort of decent alternative scene it was indie scene at that pub that's now the Tipu Sultan in Moseley Juggervale and there was like an indie scene there you know with Fram and clone and that sort of thing but they, it wasn't as interesting as Stereo Lab or something like that. Given the lack of live music in the city the Mermaid really was extra special. There weren't many places where a band could reliably get regular gigs to the point that they could develop their sound, experiment and build a reputation. That happened at the Mermaid for Napalm Death. Let's hear from two of the band's members Nick Bullen and Justin Broderick. Then we'll hear from Paul Catton, Matthew Knight and Ben Andrews. This is my bass solo, it beats Cal Benedict. <laughs> we started playing at the Mermaid in 1985. The group I was in, Napalm Death, we had played the last gig of our final early era at the Mermaid in 1984, in the middle of 1984, in June, as a benefit for the miners' strike that was taking place in the UK at the time. Then we reformed and played another concert in July 1985 with one of Justin Broderick's groups, after which Justin Broderick joined Napalm Death. And then we played for Darren Russell very early on in terms of the gigs that he put on. I think probably about the fourth gig he put on there we played and we played a number through 1985. Then by 1986, when we changed the lineup of No Palm Death again, we played very regularly to the point where it was almost as if we were the house band and a lot of people were really annoyed that we were playing again. It took some time for people to become interested in Napalm Death at that point. I wouldn't have perceived us as being particularly liked for some time, probably through to 
the spring of 1986. In 1986, I think on a purely musical level, playing so regularly at the Mermaid did allow us to really tighten and refine and give some degree of power to the sound of our band. We rehearsed, but then we did so many concerts there, sometimes three a week, that they were almost another level of rehearsal. So we became tighter and tighter and tighter. And because we were doing something that very few groups were approaching at the time, that had extra power as well. They're all on this stage, they're all wimping about about the sound. They're a bunch of wimps, man. <laughs> but they're only mirrored by the bunch of wimps who are in this place tonight. Here's Rat. Rat's not a wimp. Come on, mate. I remember, like, it was, you know, like, Yusufa was, uh, you know, we could do Yusufa 30 times in one night, you know. Uh, but that was by the time Mick was in the band. You know, we were generally, even when Mick joined and we sped all the songs up, people initially were still laughing. But quite clearly, there was some really weird turning point where I remember that I put my ass on the line and stepped up in terms of my guitar playing and riff making and all the rest of it, uh, speeding up and all the rest of it. I remember going to Coventry and performing and there was three fucked up punk rocker dudes right near the stage. This was just before or just when Mick joined and all three of them were laughing at my guitar playing. They were literally standing and pointing at me, laughing. I remember I was getting worse and worse because I was so conscious of being laughed at. I remember going home and sitting in my bedroom and literally hour upon hour mastering what I was trying to do and putting in the work like you wouldn't believe and writing more riffs and more riffs and more riffs. Who knows if that was pivotal or not, but I think the next time we started playing, people suddenly started getting quite serious and many, many people were coming. And it was just like, oh, there's something happening here. There's something about this, clearly. We were obviously more special than uh, I thought at that stage, I think. You know what I mean? I, I, I didn't really have much of a clue. But this was clearly somewhat the birth of a pivotal sound because of its hybrid, I'm sure. And all the accident, like most sounds, I feel, are often hybrids but seem instinctual at the time. I wanted to take it somewhat further, you know, because we had this sort of Killing Joke influence as well. And, you know, there was many, many things in the melting pot. Just speeding it up wasn't sort of enough, you know, I felt. There was more to it. I think we all felt that in a way. But, you know, like like the pre-scum demo, you know, that touched on other areas as well. We, we could have even more developed that. There were so many more areas, you know. But what we touched upon was still this this hybrid. There wasn't, I guess there wasn't so many people doing it. There was people doing it, but it sounded more, somewhat more conservative or somewhat more uh, adhering to like, you know, the hardcore punk booker rules and stuff. From me giving them that and me being a part in that band, about a year later, we were supporting bands like that and building up a following, you know. You know, it wasn't long before Napalm Death was on BBC television, you know. Long after I'd gone, they were playing my songs and all the rest of it. But then, you know, those songs I wrote on the A-side of Scum and my music is being played to this day across venues worldwide that I wrote in my bedroom. Scum was written in my bedroom under duress, trying to prove myself a bit and taking it to a rehearsal room, the carnage of that, presenting it at The Mermaid, having some sort of responses. And it goes on to do all these things, you know. Happy accidents from a bunch of little, you know, pre-teenagers rolling around a venue where you could just do anything you fucking wanted, you know.
Mad, mad fervent time, mad, 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 mad times. I met Mick Harris because of that gig, because he had seen me playing with Napalm Death, and then he came up to me at another random gig, and I think it was the Inca Babies, actually, another gig like that, The Mermaid. And he came up to me with Dino, with this guy. I remember being fucking terrified. It was really erratic and really fucking, like, you know, crazy. Mick is full on. It's, it's ADHD on steroids, clearly, do you know what I mean? I remember I was surprised. I thought they were probably going to beat me up or something. But it was like, I fucking love Napalm Death. We've come to see you loads of times. You ever need a drummer? I'm here. I'll fucking do it. Come and see my band. I went and saw his band. I went and saw two of his bands. And he was playing in a punk rank, rock band called Anorexia. And the Psycho Billy Band, I forget the name of them. But in each band, they were already fast, but they weren't last beat fast. Because we we concocted that in a rehearsal in his mom and dad's bedroom, you know. I talked him into playing faster and faster and faster until he got to that as fast as he could. I sped up all the songs and we both sat there together. I just faster, faster, faster. And when we were laughing so much. And in the end, it went from do, 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 to do, 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 and I was like, that's it. We've got it. You know what I mean? It was like, this is it. It's fucking mental. Nobody's, nobody's as fast as this. We've not heard anyone like this. Let's go take this, you know, let's let's make the songs like this. I remember Nick Bullen being like, oh wow, this is this is let's do this, let's 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 do let's speed every song up to hyperspeed, you know, it's incredible. We haven't heard anyone this fast, there's barely anyone that fast. This is called the kill with Nick Jennings. Napalm were bloody fierce, you know, even as a three-piece. And, you know, and I know they're complete, a completely different band now. At that time, man, there was nothing There was nothing like them. There was nothing like Extreme Noise Terror. These bands where all of a sudden that that, that vocal started to come in, especially uh, like with the ENT, you know, everyone's like, what the f-? I can remember Jim playing me the demo of that. And I was like, oh, what the fuck? What the hell is the matter with this guy's voice? It's amazing. Conflict were always brilliant. Probably watching Napalm Death as well. They, they were pretty much the house band of the Mermaid. You'd go up and go, you know, say, do you want to call the Mermaid next week? Go, who's playing? Napalm Death. And, you know, <laughs> that's the way it was. They were just brilliant. They were really, really good. Uh, absolutely loved them. So, sort of the, the other bands that came came from them or, or were around, around at the same sort of time that sort of like moved punk along. And I always felt that, that punk was something that, that, that kept on evolving constantly. And it was new and it needed to be new and relevant. And I felt that... Perhaps some of the first wave of punk bands weren't particularly relevant anymore. The fact that we were talking about, you know, anti-capitalism and uh, anti-multinationals and all that kind of stuff, that that was more relevant to wearing studs and leather jackets and and stuff like that. So I think they they spoke to me in in that respect. And also the fact that it was new, it was fast, it was hard, it was heavy. And it was like, how extreme can we go? That appealed to me as well. You saw bands like Heresy, Deviate Instinct, Extreme Noise Terror, De- Hell Bastard, bands like that that really did push the, the push the boundaries, sort of uh, morphed into sort of crusty. Yeah, and also Not Washing Your Trousers appealed to me as well. So that was uh, happy days, really. <laughs> and there's this, this idea that in the 80s there wasn't that new music. Well, the, the sort of Napalm Death scum was completely new when it came out. John Peel constantly played it. It was just no one had heard anything like that before, so I guess people said, "Well, this let's go and let's go and see Napalm Death and all uh, and all the rest before the scene died." And it did die relatively shortly afterwards. A lot of those um, anarcho punk bands just sort of split up um, early eighties. 
I asked people about the most memorable gigs at The Mermaid. Paul, Justin and Swag told me about the intensity and threat of violence at narco-punk band Conflicts shows. The only people who won't welcome is like when the skinheads used to turn up and they only ever used to turn up to like conflict gigs. They never used to bother any other time because the skins were still around there. Conflict just used to fight them and then, <laughs> and then they'd go away. Napalm Death ended up playing with Conflict and it turned into a fucking rock. You know, it turned into like, you know, there's always skin, like there's skinhead, like racist skinheads turning up. And one time there was a complete confrontation and it was like Colin Jerwood, the singer of, of Conflict, like saying, jumping off stage and like, come on. It was like a battle cry to go take on the, 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 the Nazi skinheads who are at the bottom of the stairs all wanting to have a rock with like the you know, so-called liberal punks and all the rest of it. You know, it could be terrifying, absolutely terrifying environment, especially for someone with my sensitivities as well. Because I remember thinking, all I want to do is communicate this music and injustice. <laughs> I don't want to violence and all this stuff. Like, I can never understand this shit, you know. It was like, so it's a really dangerous environment as well, to be honest. Apparently, I never went to a conflict gig. I think I was too scared to go, really. But uh, apparently some right skinheads did turn up there. There was fights there. And the police, I believe, did actually uh, visit Darren and say, don't put conflict on the gig. Yeah, which is quite a significant thing, really. You don't get police banning gigs normally in advance. It would attract an extreme left-wing element, an extreme right-wing element, and there would always be trouble. If you look at the, a lot of independent releases of crash records and so on at the time, it's a lot about Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the lyrics. She was quite hated, really. You know, she didn't care about people, ordinary people, not just like the government down today. No one liked her. You know, even people who didn't, didn't, weren't interested in politics too much. Ian Lee and Justin Broderick remember White House's 1983 show. White House were a British noise and power electronics band founded by Pete Best and William Bennett. They were active for decades, but in 1983 they were a fairly new act, and hearing from Ian and Justin, it's unsurprising the show is so memorable. If you're a promoter and you have your own band, you, you would put yourself on the appeal as well, don't you? But that White House gig, it was a, a nasty affair. It was um, swearing, loud, violent undercurrents. Not violence, but a violent sort of... Uh, atmosphere and in the end there's only um my friend Barry and me sort of left in the room whilst glasses were flying over our heads thrown by actual group by White House themselves they're, they're throwing glass glasses over so there's always broken glass on the floor which me and Barry were trying to uh, avoid but we were what are they called we're actually laughing at it all as well because it was all a bit contrived you know but it was violent and so hence how the room emptied somewhat you know my first ever performance was at the mermaid this was as my project uh with a good friend of mine andy swan who's currently promoted in birmingham again actually in 1984 and i think the first show i ever went to was white house at the mermaid in late 83 i think late 1983 and uh, that was with an old friend of mine from Shard End and my mum. My mum thought she'd come. But my mum was, uh, she was in a, with my stepdad, she was in a punk rock band in the 77 called Antisocial. And that that's a whole piece of history in itself. They made uh, one, one seven-inch only. It's one of the rarest punk seven-inches ever made. Blah, 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 blah. It was in John Peel's famous 100 seven-inch box that he kept near his door in case his house ever burned down. That record, the antisocial seven inch, was in that box. So it wasn't uncommon for my mom, B 
been a complete maniac herself to come to shows, you know, back then, possibly get drunk and start being abusive. So as you can imagine, for anyone who knows White House, that was an interesting, very interesting show. So that was, I think, my first experience of of, of the Mermaids. The whole Paralectronics thing inspired me anyway. I went on to make noise music myself. And my first ever performance as Final, but actually we weren't called Final then, we became Final a bit later. We were called Smear Campaign then, was in front of about 12 people at the Mermaid, you know. When White House performed there, because there was a lot of glass throwing going on, and it was pretty, pretty, pretty scary, I will never forget it to this day. And when I, when I met, and, and William Bennett for White House, I can count as a good friend now, that Sikh guy had to break up the show he turned up on stage and he had William Bennett in a headlock for a minute, <laughs> which was just astonishing. One of the, uh, and loads of us started filing out then. There was loads of glass. I think back then White House would bring a bit of a crew who would stand at the back and they'd go around, ask everyone to sit in chairs at the front. There used to be chairs at the Mermaid at that, you know, they're always shoved to the side. But White House got chairs set up so everyone could sit at the front and watch White House and what the who everyone in White House would bring with them a bit at the back and throw glasses above everybody's heads. So just above White House, smashing glasses above them as they're performing. Pretty scary. I remember Philip Best coming up to me and my mum, Philip Best from White House, coming up to me and my mum and saying, Do you want to come and sit down at, uh, at the front? I certainly didn't want to do it, but my mum, quite classically, was like, Why the fuck do I want to do that? That was my mum's response. I think Philip was quite taken aback with someone quite so as brutal as the performance they were going to concoct. She gave it back. He he went away and left us alone straight away because clearly my mum is a fucking terrifying person. It's funny because I've laughed with William Bennett about it many times and he was he just like, that is brilliant. He's told many people that story about my mum saying, fuck off, and how terrifying she would be because she would have beat everyone up in that venue with one fist. You know what I mean? That's how tough my fucking mom is and how scary she is. So it's just, a, a, and, and, and yeah, that's the only time I think I can ever recall where any of the staff at the venue actually got involved, where they actually had to get on stage. I barely even remember them getting involved when, like I said, when, when Napalm Death opened for like conflict there, a 40 strong crew of skinheads turned up outside willing to beat everyone up in the venue. But there's at least 300 people in there went rushing out to try and, uh, you know, have a rock usual, uh, you know, all that bullshit. I don't even remember seeing any of the staff then. <laughs> you know, the venue could have been brutalised, you know what I mean, raised to the ground. Daz Russell's taste and relentless energy for inviting bands to Spark Hill gave people the opportunity to see some pretty incredible bands and lineups. The first time I went to The Mermaid was in April 1983, and I went over to see the Canuck Birmingham band The Nightingales who played with Toxic Shock, who were a feminist duo originally from Exeter, who had ended up living in Birmingham, and also the comedian and entertainer Ted Chippington. That was the first concert that I went to see at The Mermaid, and then I saw a number of other concerts there in the intervening years before Darren Russell started to promote the concerts for which it's become more widely known after the fact. I do remember that the Thrash Festival in March of 1986 was a really interesting one for us at The Mermaid because there was a very good response to us 
which was surprising and that was within the context of playing with with a with a group of of groups that we really liked for instance heresy or amoebics so that one really stood out, out in my mind as being particularly good in that respect that's probably my, my favorite gig we played there in terms of going to see gigs it really varied i always liked to see heresy they were always extremely powerful other gigs had an element of fun to them such as chaos uk they always delivered when they came to the mermaid but then other gigs that really stood out perhaps weren't even in that milieu such as world domination enterprises who were consistently excellent there were quite a few concerts that i thought really really worked and because there was a good atmosphere at the mermaid at almost all of the concerts it usually contributed to making a good gig even better because there was a there was a good feeling in the room and i think when there were the larger bills when there was more of a like a one evening festival bands came from all over the uk it was a great time to meet up with people that perhaps you corresponded with on paper through letters and then to hear their music played live rather than listening to it on cassette so those nights were were particularly good, I thought. I also saw the Nightingales there, and I've got photos of the Nightingales, which is kind of weird because I still know Rob, who's in the Gales, and I did photos of them recently. It was like nearly exactly 40 years apart, <laughs> so that was kind of weird. But <gasps> Yeah, so I saw um, them and the Three Johns. I think the Three Johns played at the same time as the Nightingales. Mermaid was quite a... It was quite a kind of hardcore environment, environment as I remember. And um, for like an underage kid to just get in there and be rubbing shoulders with various kind of like punks and trusties, all sorts, all the whole kind of like spectrum of the kind of alternative like punk and hardcore scene. Attitude adjustment were a big deal. So people came from all over the country for that gig. And it was the only one that they did in the, the UK. Uh, well, Attitude Adjustment became Attitude later on, and they did an album, and there was a gig from uh, a picture from the Mermaid gig on the back of that album, which was called The Good, The Bad, and The Obnoxious. Uh, so yeah, you can see their their gig from the Mermaid on the on the back cover of that. It was just like ridiculously exciting um, to sort of be be kind of into that really, and that was it was the, the sort of springboard for me getting into local hardcore gigs, both in where, where I lived uh, and um, in Birmingham and Leamington as well. Leamington was a, the other, and Coventry. Birmingham, Leamington, Coventry were the, the three main places to see the kind of what was going on in at the kind of tip of the spear, I guess, for, for UK kind of punk and hardcore at the time. Obviously, like loads, loads of gigs going on in, in like London and elsewhere in the country, but that, those were the ones that were accessible to me. Anti-sect were always fucking incredible. And I remember they turned up once and they had their own kind of strobe lights and it just made this gig ridiculous. Uh, they were just so amazing. So amazing. And I think that they got robbed not long after that and lost everything. There was the there was the the like the first crust festival, which was Chaos UK, Extreme Noise Terror, Deviate Instinct, Ripcord. There, there's that flyer still buzzes around. You can still see it on upstairs at the Mermaid. Someone always posts it. That's to to this day probably one of my favourite ever gigs. 
because uh, I was massively into extreme noise terror, and that was the first time I'd seen them. Obviously, conflict because it always used to be rammed. Subhumans are just kind of split before, just before I had a chance to see them. I didn't see them obviously till they kind of reformed. Conflict gigs were always incredible because they were the they were like the biggest of the bands, you know, at the time. <sighs> too many, too many, too many great gigs, but the the ones that really stand out are were the anti-set gigs for me. I mean, because I, you know, I saw the DRI show there and the Gangrene show and all that as well. Chumbawamba, they were they were pretty incredible, and that was that was. I can remember watching Chumbawamba there, and I'd seen Chumbawamba around the place, but when I saw Chumbawamba at the Mermaid, it was like a totally different crowd. It's just like all students, so you could kind of see where they were going. Not a mohawk in sight or a glue bag. It was a, a, a shitty, dirty, grimy, grotty pub. Some of the best shows I ever saw were there as well. I mean, like without doubt, some of the best performances I ever saw by bands. Swans in 1987 there was utterly ridiculous. But, you know, one of the most life-changing shows I ever saw there was Head of David before I joined. I don't think even Dave Cochran was in the band then. I think it was just prior to Dave joining, or maybe it was when Dave just joined. That I can't recall, which is ridiculous, considering it was one of the best performances I ever saw. It was the only time a band, you know, there was like a mini stage there at the back end. You got these grimy stairs... And as you came up to the top top of the stairs, you'd go through these side doors of the pub, go up these, these stairs, turn left. You were met with two sets of doors. The doors on the left were the doors that led you into the venue and the doors on the right led you into the bar. The bar was a shitty smeggle with the worst lighting, the most oppressive lighting as well. I remember the lighting being so grim in there and yellow. And the left was the venue. The stage was a foot or so. But when I saw Head of David there, they played, not on the stage, but they played to the left under the windows. So they played the entire width of the ven- of the venue, or the length, sorry. So, And that made it even more fucking amazing. It was just incredible because the band spanned from left to right where it should really be on a concise stage, you know. Unforgettable performance. I, go, still, I can walk myself through the entire thing now. Their version of Rocket USA by Suicide. Unbelievable. This is way before I joined the band. I didn't even know, know the people then. Coming up at Tolbrook Cloud again with Faith House and Final, and also a DKZ, I don't know what that stood for, but and also a Final, who were uh, Justin Broderick's first group, I understand, and I subsequently uh, become a friend of Justin's in that in that time, so, and he's done many uh, groups subsequently, yes, that was a, a lovely gig, but there were only... Uh, 11 paying audience members that night, I've noticed. How many bands I saw that stood out? Sacrilege were fantastic. I do, I do the demo, but when, when, when Beyond the Realms came out, I thought that was fantastic. But it was a bit more, when I saw them there, it was a bit more a bit more metallic. So they'd, they'd gone on, moved on a bit. But they were still, I still loved them. They, were, they played fantastic. We supported Amoebics pretty early on as well. It was an all day, and I was a massive Amoebics fan. Yeah, and it was that was another really nerve wracking gig because obviously you're playing with bands. So you, you, you're really young and you're playing with these bands that you you just not worship because it's not about that, but you, you've got a lot of respect for and admiration for him. And, and yeah, to get to play with them is is amazing. And I remember playing and Spider, the drummer of Amoebic afterwards came up after we played. He came up and he, he was saying, "Oh, that was fantastic. It was great." And I was like, "We were just blown away." Oh, oh, oh. To get them to actually like what you did, it's, it was yeah. 
It was, yeah, it was amazing. Circle Jerks and Gangrene. That was a good one. For the first time I'd ever I drank uh, elephant beer, which I'd never drank before. They were sold in the, in the Mermaid. Mm. Carlsberg, it's, I can't remember how strong it is, but it's really strong. Uh, yeah, so I was quite drunk at that. But that, yeah, that was great because I never thought I'd see bands like Circle Jerks or Gangrene. I just thought their albums and here they were. That, that, that's what does was, was good at getting those bands on that were kind of, that were touring. He, he, he put them on. And so you got to see bands like that. Standout gig, well, the Amoebic stands out. So they were just an amazing band. They were like a, they were, you had a unique sound anyway. And they seemed to be coming from a real sort of Celtic, how can I say it? They were like, um, they were very focused on the earth. and They seemed to have a very earthy quality to them. They were quite different to some of the bands there because they, they, were, they, were, they had a very punky hairstyles to start with. By the time I was, they all had long hair, leather jackets and stuff. But they were welcomed by the punks because they, were, they had a good message. And, and the, the, the bass player was very accomplished and he had a completely unique sound. And my brother learned to play the bass because of his bass player. So they were amazing in Mavericks, fantastic. And some of the early Napalm Death gigs I really enjoyed because I knew them and I got to know the songs. They were always good fun. I lost a bit of interest when they went very heavy because they were more of a crass-sounding band, really. They were influenced by crass mainly to start with, I would say. But they changed the style quite a bit. And other, other good gigs, um, I remember um, there were some great um, foreign bands played. There was a band called Cheetah Crow Motherfuckers. CCM, they're known as, from Italy, they played. They were amazing. There was a band called Negazioni from Italy. They were really good. That's all the stupids there. You know, from Bristol. Really good. HDQ, Government Issue from America. Oh, that was a good that was a good gig. And Toxic Reasons from America. And quite often, these gigs, the support bands were people, had people on you in them. And also, another great band was, um, you know, Justin Broadry. He was in um, Godflesh and so on. His early band was called Fall of Because. They were three-piece, a bit like Killing Joke. And they were really good as well. I saw them loads. And I'm probably forgetting some great gigs, but uh, I, I usually enjoyed it. I saw there. I think I saw Zounds there who were very good. And there was a, a, a... Nick had a girlfriend at the time called Fuzz. And her third little school kid brother was in a band called AGL. Well, they couldn't play at all, but they were funny to watch, you know. Napalm Death, Rick Chords, Sore Throat, Heresy, Deviated Instinct... Extreme Noise Terror, Carcass, Bolt Thrower, Sacrilege, they were from Litchfield. <laughs> you know, the, the, the other punks from Litchfield, all those kind of bands. But yeah, it wasn't always, wasn't strictly a kind of grindcore venue. It was just a real mixture. I saw the Cardiacs there for the first time. Uh, that completely blew my mind. I've never seen anything like that before. It was just like watching... Yeah, it was like watching a pantomime or something. It was just, you know, that whole the whole performance and the way they interacted with the audience. I'd never really seen anything like that before. But yeah, probably the big, you know, standout gig was um was Swans, which I think was 87, 88. Yeah, that's the uh the night of the uh the, was it a tornado? It was a tornado, yeah. Michael Fish said wasn't wasn't going to happen, and it did. <laughs> It was like a sort of second wave punk rather than overtly sort of metal punk crossover at the time. Bands like Chaos UK, Discharge, Disorder, Conflict, uh, stuff like that. So they, they, they would tour the circuit of uh, benefit gigs and stuff. When I asked people about their standout gigs, the Swans show in 1987 came up a lot. The American band who started out in the New York no-wave scene were touring their Children of God album. By 1987, they were already influential and well-known for their punishing sound. 
At a ramshackle venue like The Mermaid, the heavy volume was almost too much and people told me it had an effect on the building itself and even avid fans ended up retreating to the relative safety of the downstairs bar. Swans, on that tour, they brought their own PA around, which was quite legendary then. Then very, very rarely did bands bring like a 6K rig, which then was like pretty brutal, into a, 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 a small setting like that, you know. And literally it was the only time I ever saw plaster falling off the ceiling, you know, and it did feel like the venue could possibly implode. You know, it was too much for the mermaid, basically. I don't think that the foundations could quite sustain this, this volume. You know, they had this 6K rig at, at full volume, you know. It was tremendous. It was a, a full body experience and endlessly in, in, inspirational as well, you know. In terms of taking things to the next level of, uh, of everything, really, fucking un, un, unbelievable, un, untrue experience. Particularly there, I remember being really blown away as well because I'd been a, a fan of Swan since about 84, you know, not even possibly 83, 83, 84. It was when I first heard Cop, whom I get my very good and close friend Andy Swan, who, who, who we did Power Electronics with, who's, who's now on the scene as well. It was life-changing here in Swans anyway. So seeing them in that venue that I sort of was almost raised in musically, you know what I mean? And had any impact i mean of, of course that that scene our scene from the mermaid at that period you know i wouldn't really have a career without it you know that was that probably to this day was the loudest thing i ever heard in my life it was just mental because they were a new york noise band i bought their album afterwards and it, it was hilarious because on the label it says something like correct playback only possible at maximum volume <laughs> and you've got to put it on 10 and it was very, you know, thudding, Sabbathy, grinding stuff. And, and Michael Gyra, the singer, he, he was a strange chap. He came out with his entire head bandaged. And I don't know if that was a stage thing or whatever, but he, he and he just had a mad stare. And it was just, it was just shockingly loud. I mean, everything was on ten. The amps were like this. The floor was vibrating. The ceiling was vibrating. There were actually bits of plaster falling off the ceiling as they went. You could see it shaking. And people, I've, I've read since, and I, I can't recall at the time, but people said car alarms in the road were going off because it was that loud. The wi windows, every beat, the windows were vibrating. It was just shockingly loud. And then I, I sometimes used to take earplugs to gigs. I can't remember if I had any, but I know it was one of those where the next day you had tinnitus for about four days because it had been that insanely loud. That was good. That was a good gig. <laughs> when the Swans, when they were like sound checking, the bass player like strummed a chord and somebody came to the top of the stairs and it blew them back down the stairs, <laughs> which when you think about it, couldn't have happened. But then somebody else said, actually, that did kind of happen. But what it was, was the, the noise startled somebody and they lost their footing and, and sort of tripped down the stairs. But I think the, the, the original skewed story is the it's the better one the one standing the gig is uh swans in 1987 it's the gig that everyone says they went to but they can't know because it wasn't that packed i can't remember anything about the support it was uh the children of god tour so it was with the uh, jarbo and it was um the it was pretty life-changing it was the loudest gig i've ever been to they put everything through um bass amps and it was there's no distortion it was very very clear but um it was so loud your clothes shook it was just i mean it was it was almost like 
performance art loud in that sense. It was, it wasn't like anything else I'd ever heard before. You sort of knew they were part of like New York no wave type stuff, and you know it's going to be loud. But um, it was um, it was quite uplifting because the whole Children of God album is sort of like influenced by like messianic Christian televangelists, and and so Michael Jara was sort of like like some sort of like a, uh, summoning up demon sort of thing. It was just it, it wasn't very long. If you read, there's a it's a Swans book where they mention the Birmingham gig and say that some people were sick, but I don't think that's true. Some a lot of people left. The actual the book mentions that some of the plastering fell off the ceiling. But yeah, that was that was that was one of the best ever gigs I've uh, been to. It was just it was just completely different from anything else I've ever seen. And you can't play it, you can't play it on record to get it that loud. You know, it's just it it was it was quite uplifting because it was so loud. There was something about the sort of power of it. Yeah, th- th- that was the standout gig for me. There was a couple of others, but you'd have to tell me who was playing and I'd say if I could or couldn't. I saw Mark Riley in the Creepers gig there. That was okay. And then there was lots of other sort of grindcore all-dayers. Coincidentally, or maybe evoked by the Old Testament-style smite and fury of Children of God era swans, this was the night of the Great Storm of 1987. A huge cyclone, thought to be a once-in-200-years event, descended on the country. Julie and Ian remember the storm adding to the poetry and power of the swans gig. I'd heard of swans before. I think somebody had done me a tape of their of a live show and I just loved the sound and never heard again it was like something I never like nothing had ever heard before there yeah when I heard that they were playing I had to go and see them it was you know like I said it was so loud uh there was sort of the plaster was <laughs> was falling off the ceiling um when they started there was quite a few people in the venue itself and as they got into the set and got louder and heavier people just started moving towards the back of the room until everybody was kind of like that against the back wall. And then there was a load of people in the corridor, the other side of the double doors, I think for a bit of like, just a bit of safety. But yeah, I was stood at the back and uh, the plaster was falling off the ceiling and it looked like snow falling (laughs) from the ceiling. And then, yeah, I just remember looking at my pints and, you know, the water, uh, water, cider (laughs) Uh, the the liquid was just kind of like vibrating like in Jurassic Park when the dinosaurs were coming absolutely deafening but also like just that feeling of like that stomach churning bass going like right through your soles of your feet and through your body was just like and then uh, to come out and see like this like apocalyptic landscape outside with rubbish blowing down the streets and all the trees bending and it was just, yeah, it felt like the end of the world. It felt like the most fitting kind of end to a Swans gig ever. <laughs> it was like it was orchestrated by them. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and that's uh, when I was still living in Lichfield. I don't know, managed to get the bus back into town and got to the station and then found all the uh, the trains had been cancelled because of the, the storm and pretty fucked, I think. <laughs> Because I had told my mum that I was going around to friends to do some homework. So I didn't make it home that night. I think I had some friends in Moseley, so I just got the bus back to Moseley and went around to their house. Stayed on the sofa, had to go home and face the music the next day. And 
yeah, I was in a lot of trouble for that, <laughs> but it was worth it. <laughs> Sixteenth of October, nineteen eighty-seven. That was, yeah, the infamous Swans gig. Swans, supported by the local band the Dog Band and Blues. The Swans, mighty. It was a mighty, explosive uh, night of um, oral terror in a way. Yeah, very small room, huge and powerful PA. Parts of the ceiling came down onto the audience. Due to the noise levels, the whole whole room was shaking. I remember one audience member had his head in the bass speakers for most of the gig. He, he was probably permanently deafened because of that. I don't know, but that was a madness, madness. You know, it was a cracking gig. That was probably the best ever I was at the Mermaid for. And of course, that that previous evening had been the great storm of. 1987. So it all sort of tied in a way as well, you know, great storm weather-wise and a great storm music-wise. I thought that was a clever bit of a... Well, it wasn't planned, but it was a clever bit of bit of a timing, I'll say, yeah. I bloody loved that even. Swans, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And were you watching Swans in the room? or Because I heard somebody say it was so loud that they like were watching from the corridor. No, in the room. Uh, Corridor, my in the room, in the room, yeah, yeah. Good for you. Yeah, no earplugs either in those days, I don't think, no. You just go well with it, don't you? In my view, anyway. Yeah. You know, you expose yourself to what's there. You don't sort of um, hide away somewhere. That's the bands. Next time we'll look at the lasting impact of The Mermaid what it was like to be a punk in the 80s, and the power of finding your people. At The Mermaid is a capsule production, created with funding from Historic England, music kindly provided by Blue Ruth, and archive clips thanks to Uncouth Youth, Terminal Sound Nuisance, and Rolling Rock videos on YouTube. Please look out for the publication too, and thanks to all the contributors. Alice Rosenthal produced this series. If you're enjoying it, please rate and share. Find out more about Home of Metal at homeofmetal.com.